You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen and good morning. My name is Drew Humphrey. I have the privilege of serving as college pastor here at Highland. Pastor John is out of town today, but some of you may have already known that because this morning there was a cat sitting right outside the front door right here. And um, so I guess the whole neighborhood knew that we, our pastor was out of town today, but I'm excited to continue in God's word. We've been in Ecclesiastes for the last month or so, and today we will continue in Ecclesiastes chapter nine. You can begin to make your way there. If you're new to Highland or if you're new to this series, if you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes comes two, two books right after the book of Psalms. So the book of Psalms is that big one right Right in the middle. If you open your Bible to the middle, you'll find Psalms. Go two books to the right, Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, and you'll be there. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. This morning we're talking about success. Success drives nearly everyone. It's the reason why many of you in this room will spend dozens of thousands of dollars you know, for an education, for, for going to school. Or for many of us, we've gone to school for 15, 20 years of our lives being in a classroom. It's why some of you will work 60-hour work weeks, or others will buy expensive cars and clothes and, and boats and appear to just appear successful, whether you are or not. Or, or maybe success drives your prayer life or your daily agenda. Maybe you just want to be a successful spouse or a successful parent. And so as I was preparing for this message, I Google searched, you know, famous quotes about success. And I didn't find a good quote, so sorry, I'm not going to share any with you. But what I did find is that every single person who had a famous quote about success was a famous successful person. You know, it was like... Ben Franklin or you know Albert Einstein. I found Bill Gates, JFK, Henry Ford, John Wooden. You'll, you'll never see inspiring quotes about success from the people who came in second or in third or in last place, which makes up most of us in the race. <laughs> we never see those quotes. We, we never hear the wisdom from then. You're going to hear these quotes from, from people that have succeeded in major ways. I mean, Bill Gates and, and Henry Ford and, and JFK and all these people. And, and it's like, man, I am inspired. I, I want to be like this. I can keep going. We want to find our success too. But it's those who didn't succeed, those who didn't get the famous quote that know all too well what we're talking about today. Success is as unpredictable as all other parts of life. Success is just as unpredictable as anything else. And a warning to us today is that it's so easy to turn success into a God that we worship. It's so easy to worship the God of success where we build our entire life around success. And Solomon understands this and passes on some important wisdom to us about success in our life. So let's begin reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 11. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, or evil people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. The first thing that we see from Solomon on success is that abilities and morality are not predictors of success. Abilities and morality are not predictors of success. We can see this first in verse 11, abilities. I mean, he lists off five things where you'd expect a 
one particular outcome, you know, the fastest or the strongest, the wisest, the smartest, the most gifted, all of these people you would expect to be the winners, when in fact, many times, these people turn out to be the losers and, and they don't turn out, their life doesn't turn out the way they expected. You can ask Robert Griffin III, who was calling the Baylor game last night on TV, right? As a 30-year-old, he's 30 right now, if, I'm guessing that he was expecting to be playing on Sundays in the NFL, not calling Saturday night football games for his alma mater. I mean, ability has really nothing to do. It matters so little to success. We've built a nation on the idea that anyone who works hard, anyone who, who has the ability to, who tries hard to, to overcome whatever anyone can succeed. And Solomon says, perhaps that isn't true. The other thing, it's not just abilities, but it's also morality that's not a predictor of success. At the beginning of verse 11, Solomon says this, I have seen something else. So what did he see first? He saw something else. He saw the abilities. What else has he seen? The morality. Go back to verse 2 with me in chapter 9. Just about nine verses before the one we just read. Chapter 9, verse 2. He says this about morality. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Morality is not a predictor of success. All share a common destiny. The righteous, the wicked, the good, the bad. The same destiny overtakes all of us. And many of us, though, we live in this world, this worldview, this false worldview of, of like a Christian karma thing, where it's like, if I'm just good enough, then I'll get successful. If I'm good enough, then I'll find my spouse or, or I'll keep this opportunity. And, and it becomes a very toxic way to live. But as we know, that's not true because there's a very famous quote that says, bad things happen to good people. It's a famous quote because it's true. Bad things happen to good people. You know you're probably a pretty good person or you know good people and and bad things happen. Morality is not a predictor of success. Things happen to all kinds of people. Why don't abilities and why doesn't morality predict success for us? Solomon tells us at the end of verse 11, look back at chapter nine, verse 11 says this, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. How encouraging this morning. Chance here, though, it's a poor translation for the word. And I feel confident saying that because the NIV, the ESV, the King James, and basically every version actually missed this, and they all miss it because it's hard to define what the word really is. But our best guess is really more of a phrase. It's like an occurrence, a happening in life, an encounter. Because a chance brings this sort of impersonal randomness to it or, or luck. But, but we know that that's not really how God works. We know that's not how life works. And so the word here is pega. It's the word that means an occurrence, a happening in life, an encounter. And it's simply something we encounter on the path of life, a circumstance or a situation. And here's the key phrase over which we have no control. I've learned what pega is uh, through my life as a foster parent. I've been a foster father for the last two years. And what I always thought, it seems like at every turn, what I thought would happen or what I thought should happen didn't happen. It was, you know, things would happen out of nowhere. The phone call would come on a normal day or, or CPS cases would shift on a dime. No matter how hard I tried to, to find particular outcomes, things would change. I would help biological parents to succeed and then it wouldn't be what I expected. I would help advocates or judges to understand. I would over-communicate and send long emails and, and text and do all of these things to try to help along, find success. And, but always time and chance have happened to them all. 
So that's my pitch to become a foster parent, okay? We need more of those people in our church. But of course, as Christians, we know that what seems random really is not. I hope you know that. That what seems random really isn't. We know that God is in control, that God is working out things behind the scenes, even in the most evil moments. Listen, even in the most backward outcomes, God can clean up a mess and God can redeem. This is called, big word, God's providence. God's providence. It's best defined like this in Romans 8, 28, when when it says, we know that in all things, important phrase, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Or in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when it's the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, but God worked it out behind the scenes to make it matter for his glory, for their good. And, And this is what he said, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. This is what it means for God, for his providence to be displayed. If you're a note taker, you may want to write this down this morning. Providence means that God is working all things to accomplish his greater purposes. God is working all things. That phrase, all things, is so important. I mean, all circumstances, all disasters, all sinful choices, all godly choices, all charitable giving, all charitable moments, all selfish actions. All of these things God works together to accomplish his greater purpose, which is not necessarily our preferred or expected outcomes. And so two disclaimers on God's providence that I think are important for us today in life. The first one is this, is that providence is God redeeming our mess, not authoring foolishness. The Bible is clear to explain that God does not author sin, God does not author foolishness, but he is certainly capable of redeeming it and using it for his good behind the scenes. So you can trust God, even in the midst of your own sin, even in the midst of someone else's sin, that God can work things out. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. The second disclaimer that we need to remember is that providence is not permission for our passivity. Providence is not permission for us to be lazy. It's not permission for us to be passive. This doesn't mean that we should not care about excellence. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about stewardship, or as the New Testament says, making the most of every opportunity. I love the verse in Proverbs 21, 31, which says, which says this, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. You and me, we prepare, we prepare our lives. We, we live for excellence. We live for good stewardship. We, we make the most of opportunities. We're prepared, but victory belongs to the Lord. That's what it means to have God have providence. And so Solomon is writing to us here to say that we should not trust in our abilities That we should not trust in our morality as a predictor for success, but instead to trust in the sovereign God's guiding hand to do what is ultimately best, as he knows best. And so from our perspective, we don't always know what God is doing behind the scenes. So we must trust him. See, the lessons that I had to learn as a foster parent have applied to my whole life. There weren't that if I kept the commu- communication lines clear with those workers that, that I'd succeed or that if I helped the bio parents above and beyond, then I would succeed. Or if I guarded my heart, then I'd succeed. None of that brought success. What, what I learned and applies to my whole life is that what mattered most was learning to work hard and to work faithfully and yet to fully trust God to work it out, to work it out for good behind the scenes. And in hindsight, as we know, it's 2020. We can always see it clearly in hindsight. You know, a year later, six months later, two years later, I can see what God was doing, why he did it, those ways, the lessons I learned, the trust I built, the, the children that I met because children had left my home, these things, that was what success was to me, to trust God and to say, you are sovereign. You can make all of this work out for my good and for your glory. And so perhaps our definition of success is all wrong. If you build a life 
grasping for success, then you'll likely find that it'll be a foolish waste of your life. It's a God who can't deliver. But it isn't always the most able or the most godly who finds success because that isn't what defines success in God's kingdom. Success is found here in staying faithful to the one who works providentially above all the circumstances of life. This is what success is. Trusting the faithful one to work out all these things providentially above the circumstances of life and make it work out for his glory and for our good. Let's continue reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 13 is where we're picking it up. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. I think this is a real story that he's about to tell us about because he said, I saw this under the sun, this example. Verse 14, I was once in a small city with only, or excuse me, there was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise. If you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, maybe circle that phrase, poor but wise. And yet he saved the city by his wisdom. Nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The second piece of wisdom from Solomon is this, is that success is not a predictor of praise. Success is not a predictor of praise. So now Solomon shows us that even if you find success in life, even if in an earthly sense you are successful or or what you set out to do you accomplish, you will likely be forgotten like this poor but wise man. Verse 15, it said that this man was poor. He was overlooked and forgotten before this point. He was not listened to when things were fine in the city. While other people were were getting rich, he remained poor. And it's important to realize that they knew he was wise. They knew that he had value to their society because as soon as they needed him, they called on him. But all those years, all those decades, however long it had been, he was just the poor, wise man that was not used. Other people, you know, looked past him. Other people made lots of money while he remained poor. And yet he served the city when they needed his wisdom. And then after he saved the city with his wisdom, he was remembered no more again. Just like before, he was forgotten. Again, there was no parade. There was no praise. There was no write-up in the local news. There was no statue. He was forgotten. And I'm sure because he's a wise man that he could predict what would happen after he found success. He knew that if I do this, they will likely go back to forgetting about me. And yet, he still saved and served the city when they needed his wisdom. And he did that because the wise one doesn't allow circumstances It doesn't allow predicted outcomes to determine the investment of their life. One writer that I read this week said it this way, private interests and personal resentments must always be sacrificed to the public good and forgotten when the common welfare is encouraged, or excuse me, when the common welfare is concerned. So questions, it would have been, you know, reasonable for him to ask questions like and to think in his heart, why would I help you? What have you ever done for me? You have forgotten me and you'll likely forget me again. These questions that may come up into our life, how will this benefit me? Sounds nothing like the words of a Jesus imitator. Or, well, I guess you forgot what you did to me in the past. Sounds nothing like what Jesus would say and therefore it shouldn't come out of the believer's mouth either. What makes this story here so powerful and so great is that it foreshadows our Savior in Jesus because Jesus was the poor but wise man. He was forgotten by the people and yet he delivered the people. How did he save us? He looked 
and did what, what looked to be foolish at that time. He used what looked to be foolish for salvation and his wisdom was our redemption. So our encouragement today is to not forget the poor but wise man of Jesus. How easily we can forget the one who saved us when life is easy and when things are not dire. In verse 17, Solomon, he says, just as success is not a predictor of praise, here it is, so too praise is not a predictor of wisdom. Verse 17 said that the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of the ruler of fools. My dad used to tell me this. He said, you can say the right thing the wrong way and it won't be heard. It's not just what you say, but how you say it that matters. Praise is not a predictor of wisdom. It's in our our present day, outrage and shouting fill the nightly news. Caps locks fills our our social media feeds. And, And the more that you do, the more clicks, the more likes, the more viewers, the more followers that you get. You get more than you could ever desire the more that you do those things. More outrage equals more engagement in 2021. Pick the medium. The coffee shop, your office, and your family Thanksgiving, on the news, on social media, more outrage equals more engagement in 2021. And many of the most famous and influential voices in our society are the ones that scream the loudest. Turn on ESPN tomorrow morning and Stephen A. Smith will be there. Turn on Fox Sports and, and Skip Bayless will be there. Turn on CNN or Fox News and, and pick your, your nightly show and, and you will see outrage upon outrage upon outrage. Entire media markets being built. Entire media ideas being built around the idea that outrage brings engagement. We're literally funding an entire industry of foolishness through media, through news, through social media, through podcasts, and more. So our warning from the word today is to be cautious, Christian, what you support. Be cautious what you consume. Solomon knows the truth that shouting and outrage, they're the ways of foolishness because when everything is an outrage, then there are no dynamics to know when something truly matters. The wise one knows that wisdom is best received and considered with quiet and calm words in nearly every case. I mean, consider Jesus. He, he was always calm and always seemingly quiet with his teachings, except for that one time when, when he really was outraged, when there was the righteous anger in the temple because people were doing ungodly things there. They were taking advantage of the poor. They weren't praying. And, but in every other case, Jesus was calm even before those who were accusing him of, of, of false things when he was on trial the night before he was to die. He was calm. More on that later as 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 Solomon tells us more about being calm. But perhaps instead of consuming the shouts of fools, we should find the quiet, wise sage in our life and listen to them more often. So Solomon continues in chapter 10, verse 1. Let's keep reading. He says, as dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. I'm sorry to use the S word in church, but it's in the Bible. So I had to say it, parents. Okay, I'm sorry. Stupid you are. I mean, this is like heavy stuff. The third thing is this, is that foolishness cannot be hidden. Foolishness cannot be hidden. Many will try to hide their foolishness or to hold on to just a small amount of foolishness behind the scenes to keep their success or to find success. In verse one, Solomon compares perfume and wisdom because they're really similar when you think about it. You know, perfume smells good and wisdom is that thing that's like, man, I just want more of that in my life. I need more wisdom in my life. That person, I need them to to kind of cover all my, you know, foolishness and and to listen to them. And, you know, perfume takes a long time and and a specific process to put those things together. Same with wisdom. 
They're very similar, and yet just a few dead flies, Solomon says, can spoil the smell of perfume. I mean, I've never smelled a bunch of dead flies before. That's not on my bucket list in life. But Solomon says they're stinky. And even a few dead flies with a beautiful smelling perfume, it's it's ruined. It's the same It's the same with our wisdom. This is exactly what happens when a wise person allows just a little foolishness to enter their lives. It only takes a little. Your reputation may be honorable and trustworthy and wise, but just a little foolishness will expose you and you'll lose all that trust. So many think that that we can live the double life with sin hiding behind the main curtain of the life. And, And we believe that no one will see the foolishness going on backstage and it won't affect anything happening on the main stage. But Solomon knows better. And he goes on to explain why in verses two and verse three, he's he's telling us, he's saying the wise person is pulled to the right and the, the foolish person is pulled to the left. I mean, it's like trying to walk both directions down the street at one time. It's impossible. The pulling on your life, the, the heart of the fool wants the opposite of what the heart of the wise wants. And trying to balance these things is impossible. Your, your perfume of, of wisdom will become stinky to others quickly. It's impossible for others not to notice. Verse three says it lacks sense. Verse three says everyone knows how foolish that you are. Foolishness cannot be hidden in any amount. Its stench and its pulling of you in different directions will be obvious to everyone else. And in fact, most who try to hide their foolishness think they're doing a good job of hiding it when most people around them who really know them know the truth. It's obvious to them. It's impossible to hide for a long period of time. It seems that to be a fool, you must be the only person who doesn't know that you're a fool. And the Bible is clear that you are a fool if you believe you can live with a little foolishness in your life and get by as wise. Because you cannot serve both masters. You'll be pulled in multiple directions and the stench will catch up to you soon enough. And so let's look back to the text for one final piece of wisdom from Solomon. Chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes verse 4. If a ruler's anger rises against you, so now we're talking about someone else's foolishness, not just your own, but... What will your response be in the face of someone else's foolishness? Do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions while the rich occupy the low ones. I've seen slaves on horsebacks while princes go on foot like slaves. The fourth and final thing that we see is how to face a fool with wisdom. Facing a fool with wisdom, what does that look like? Many times in our lives, we will look foolishness straight in the face in someone else, and our response will dictate if we too are a fool. Will we double down on being a fool, or will we respond to someone else's foolishness in a wise way? If a ruler is acting foolishly, Solomon's wise advice is to not double down on foolishness. This could be a boss. It could be a parent. It could be a politician or a pastor. It might be a teacher, or if you're a teacher, it could be your school administrator. It could be a a spouse. Many times people will be fools in front of us. It's inevitable. And verses six and seven tell us that society often has it backwards. It's flipped. You know, who, who should be in places of influence and leadership are the wise ones and the fools should be left to to influence no one, but it's actually reversed. That in society uh, across all these years, I mean, this isn't a new thing in 2021 that we're seeing. This is 2,500 plus years ago that Solomon's talking about this idea that fools rise to the top and find leadership positions and find influence. And it isn't my job today to tell you who is foolish in our society, but you don't have to look very far through both political parties, through the famous news personalities on the evening news from both sides, from social media influence, 
influencers, basically anywhere else to find plenty of examples where foolishness is highlighted, where foolishness is lifted up to lead and influence in our culture. So what will you do in the face of foolishness? Because it's inevitable that you will face foolishness at some point in your life. The first thing that Solomon told us to do in verse four was to not leave your post. Do not leave your post. I mean, we saw it during the last two elections that when, when one side would win, the other side would say, well, I'm moving to Canada or I'm moving to Europe or I'm moving to, and of course they didn't leave the nation most likely. I, I didn't see a mass exodus, but how about in your job or in your marriage or with your friends or in the organization that you're a part of? Maybe it's one of these things where someone's acting foolish and of course you could just leave and, and I'll say this, maybe you should leave. I, I'm not sure that I should say, I don't know the situation like you do. But my job today is to ask you to consider the word. Have you considered what Solomon says here when he says this, this wise advice of do not leave your post? Perhaps you could do a lot of good by staying in that foolish environment and being an example of godly wisdom. And what is that example of wisdom in the face of foolishness? Is it righteous anger? Is it you know, intellectually dunking on somebody so, because you're right and they're wrong? No. The second thing that he tells us when we face a fool, is to be calm. Be calm. Wisdom, when a fool is in your face, looks like calmness. The word for calmness is the word merpe, and it means this gentle speech. Gentle speech. That's hard to do. Solomon's own father, King David, he experienced this himself. Like I can imagine King David sitting his old son down and teaching him these things and, and teaching him these life lessons. And one of the life lessons he learned was when King David, before he was king, he had been appointed king because the previous king, King Saul, he was so foolish and so ungodly that God said, I, I can't even deal with you anymore. I have to go find a man after my own heart. And he found David and that enraged Saul. You remember the story? It made him so mad that he tried to kill David on multiple accounts and, and he was chasing David with his arm he's just trying to run him out and, and all because he was so jealous he was so outraged he was so foolish and David facing a fool like this on multiple occasions he had every right to kill Saul and to take the throne for himself from this fool of a king and yet on two occasions he calmly faces Saul with, with opportunities to kill him and, and instead he says this phrase I love these words from David I will not lay a hand on God's anointed talk about understanding God's providence I will not lay a hand on God's anointed. When God is ready to dethrone this fool, he will do it. And a calm response was David's choice in the face of foolishness. And so I ask you to consider your heart. I mean, Solomon learned this lesson from David. Maybe you'll learn this from Solomon. Your words to a trusted friend. What are those like when you vent? What is your heart like when, when that just blood is boiling? What are your social media posts like? I mean, have you acted wisely in the face of foolishness? Have you acted with gentleness or with calm speech? Or have you doubled down on their foolishness with your outrage, with your anger, with your know-it-allness? These are the questions that Solomon puts before us. And, you know, it, it seems like it would be so simple. I recently heard some, some really good advice and, and, and wise words on this subject. It seems like it would be so simple to, to be wise in the face of foolishness, to be calm in the face of outrage. But actually, in 2021, it's so abnormal that, that if you do those things, it's like an apologetic. It's a defense of the faith. It's a mark of the true disciple of Jesus, if you can actually be calm in the face of outrage. I mean, used to, it was like, if I'm going to be wise, you know, I was like, I've studied the Bible for so long in my life, and the bar is so high you know, for what wisdom really is. And, and I can share the Bible. I can live the Bible. I can go overseas and lose my life. Or, or I can be the person that writes this beautifully written, you know, op-ed in the paper. And it's like, wow, I haven't thought about it that way. That used to be wisdom, right? 
right? And now it's like in 2021, the bar's like way down here and just like, don't be a jerk, you know? <laughs> like don't post crazy stuff when people are being crazy, you know? And it's like, that, and it's like I can do that. And then when you do that, someone's like, man, you are so wise, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, I mean, that is just ridiculous, but that is the reality of our culture right now. It's completely foreign to us, calmness in the face of a fool or a foolish decision. That's, that's probably in part why our culture looks so pathetic, how foolish we must look when we post and respond the way that we do. I mean, we've grown accustomed to acting like this, to, to fighting foolishness with foolishness, with outrage with outrage, and, and therefore we're just as foolish as the person that we're angry with. And nobody listens to each other. Nobody listens to the wisdom of the Lord. See, the response of outrage is not only foolish, but it's ineffective. In, in verse four, he said this, he said that the phrase, or said, he said, calmness lays great offense to rest. And that phrase lays to rest is this phrase that means to pacify. It's like when my infant is throwing a fit, I just grab that pasty and pop it in their mouth and it's like, you know, it just calms down. It's like, okay, like I'm back, you know? Calmness is that way when people are being outrageous, when people are being foolish. So you might be saying, Drew, what about righteous anger? What about when I'm supposed to like stand up for what's right and these kind of things? And, and it's true that there are many times when righteous anger needs to be exercised. That's true. But our Christian witness would likely stand in better light if we chose calmness in most circumstances. Because it's there, Solomon says, in the face of empowered foolishness that wisdom will actually be heard. See, we've got it backwards. Most of our life, we, we have righteous outrage and then we have these moments of calmness. But what, what Solomon's saying is, no, your life should be defined by calmness in the face of outrage, in the face of foolishness. And there may be some times where righteous anger is right. We have it all backwards and our culture is, is spiraling because of it. Don't double down on foolishness when someone else is a fool in your face. And so I close this morning. We've seen today that success and wisdom, they're, they're hard to come by. Many times, those who have found success are the most foolish of our society, and those with the most wisdom are the most forgotten. Many times, we make a God out of wisdom. We turn success, excuse me, we make a God out of success. And that God of success is, is a disappointing God. And then again, there's Jesus who was wisdom in the flesh. Jesus summarized success like this. He said, don't make success your God. This is the kind of thing that he said. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Leave everything. Sell it all. He bids us come and die. And then we find life. That does not sound like a New York Times best-selling book on success. <laughs> Sell it all. Give it away. Die to yourself. This is what Jesus came to say about success. So we may not find earthly success because that isn't as unpredictable as anything else as we've seen this morning through the word, but we can find life when we live life his way. The final thing this morning is that worldly success is unpredictable. Time and chance happens to all, but peace is attainable through trusting the wise one in heaven. By living not a double life, but a life fully aimed at wisdom and by imitating our savior who in the face of foolishness wisely chose to be calm. Let's pray. Jesus, there are many in this room today who, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest before you, we could, we could probably make a pretty good case that success has become our God. That with every move we make, every decision, every, every prayer, 
every concern, every anxious thought, it's about taking that next step or, or finding success or keeping success or not losing success. And Lord, what a horrible, horrible God success has become to us. I pray that this would be a time of repentance for many of us, that, that we would lay down our idols, lay down those false gods. And we would look to you, the living God, who says, look, success is about laying it down. Success is about throwing it away for the gospel. Success is about leaving it behind and following me, trusting me, trusting my providence. God, would that be what marks our people here today? And Father, for those of us who, who we hear outrageous things or foolish things said to us, Lord, maybe we need to repent this morning because there are, are just moments in our life where we just respond from outrage to outrage, foolishness to foolishness, and, and we aren't calm, we, we aren't wise in how we do what we do. God, would this be a time of repentance, Lord? Thank you that you redeem all of the messes that we make. Lord, would you do that this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.